FromTheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. This is Bernard Gersh at the Mayo Clinic, and uh, with me is my colleague, Dr. Sam Azavathan, who uh, has very wide interests in the field of uh, electrophysiology and interventional electrophysiology, but today we're going to talk about ventricular tachycardia in patients without structural heart disease. Welcome, Sam, and maybe you can just begin by um, uh, telling us exactly what the entities are before you actually describe each entity. Thank you, Dr. Gersh. So patients with without structural heart disease and ventricular arrhythmia fall under three syndromes. Those with frequent PVCs that trouble them and have symptoms, a second group where they have typically exercise-related ventricular tachycardia. So there's three entities in that group? Yes. Which are? And the third is the patient with frequent PVCs without symptoms but presenting because of ventricular dysfunction. So the first group are symptomatic palpitations? Yes. The third group are palpitations with or without symptoms causing LV dysfunction. And the intermediate group, or the group with exercise, that would include outflow tract VT, what's it, catecholaminergic polymorphic VT, and Mm -hmm. what else? So the group with exercise-related ventricular tachycardia and structurally normal heart are mostly benign entities, like, for example, outflow tract ventricular tachycardia. These can be readily recognized on the electrocardiogram uh, with the QRS morphology showing tall, positive R waves in leads 2, 3, and AVF. But the reason we carefully evaluate this patient... And a left bundle branch block morphology. Either a left or right bundle branch block morphology. Does that depend on whether it's coming from the left or the right ventricular outflow tract? Yes. But the commonest is right ventricular outflow tract, so positive in 2, 3, and AVF, negative in V1 to V3. Yes, and that would be more common than right bundle branch block morphology, but both probably have a similar prognostic significance. Benign. And they are benign. There is, however, some important subgroups that have to be excluded. One is the very malignant syndrome of CPVT, or catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. Familial history? The family history is important, but perhaps more so is the exquisite sensitivity to exercise. In other words, they have almost no PVCs at rest, but with exercise, there's reliable induction of PVCs, VT, and a very unique type of VT, which quickly degenerates to uh, polymorphic arrhythmia. And um, we know the genetic substrate. It's one of the, what's the ryonidine receptor? Yes, so the most common is a ryanodine receptor uh, problem that can be picked up with genetic testing. A second involves the calsequestrin gene, a slightly different inheritance pattern. Uh, Outside of this group, the other malignant syndromes that present as outflow tract VT are patients with who have the syndrome of idiopathic ventricular fibrillation. This is a rare entity where patients normal heart but present with VF. But what they have are outflow tract PVCs on the on a Holter monitor. This uh, the other is right ventricular dysplasia, arrhythmogenic right ventricular right. cardiomyopathy. So I want to stay away from that 
that entity for the moment. And um, let's just discuss the therapy for right ventricular outflow tract tachycardia, exercise-induced, relatively benign, beta blockers, verapamil, or ablation, and excellent results. I think uh, it's hard to go wrong with uh, structurally normal heart, RVOT, VT, but the beta blocker dose that's typically effective tends to slow patients down. Their sinus rates go down. Especially if they're young people. They're young, active people. Otherwise, issues with sexual dysfunction with beta blockers, often at the dose that's required for control of arrhythmia, that a common modality of therapy today is ablation for these patients. Uh, they can respond to verapamil too, can't they? Yes. Uh, it's certainly true for left ventricular outflow tract tachycardia. Okay. Right ventricular outflow tract tachycardia, there's no clear data one way or the other. So really good candidates for ablation. Catecholamine, polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. What's it? CPVT. ICD? Patients with CPVT today in the United States uh, receive an ICD and are also placed on beta blockers. Right. But two important uh, modalities of treatment are evaluated and discussed with patients. This includes ablation and selective sympathectomy, typically uh, below the stellate ganglion on the left sympathetic Ablation chain. of what, Sam? So for CPVT, if the patient has significant PVCs with exercise that appear to be of one morphology, okay. these can be targeted for ablation. Uh, secondly, during EP study, when isoproteranol is used, the earliest PVC prior to polymorphic degeneration can also be targeted. Sam, I've heard you talk, let's go back to idiopathic ventricular fibrillation. Is, is that the same as the fascicular focus that may degenerate into VF that so, I've heard you talk about before? Yes, it probably is. It's fair to say, I think, that a group of disorders present as idiopathic VF. One of them is clearly the fascicle-triggered VF. And how do we recognize that? What should be the index of suspicion for the clinician? So index of suspicion should be very high in any patient with an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, normal heart, no coronary anomalies, and whose QT interval is normal uh, even when repeatedly measured. In these patients, a Holter monitor clue is often monomorphic PVCs that occur just before even non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. When you say just before, so for example, what do you mean by that? For example, if a patient has 20 episodes of non-sustained VT, the VT episodes themselves are multiple morphologies. But just prior to the first beat of this uh, okay. VT, there is a PVC that's identical with each episode. And is there any particular morphology or is that individual? The morphologies that are suspicious are those consistent with fascicular origin. This would be, for example, the very normal looking QRSs, especially the initial portion, and having a superior axis right bundle branch block morphology. Right bundle, right axis. Right bundle and uh, superior axis, okay. either right or left. And um, narrow QRS? The initial uh, 50 to 80 milliseconds tends to be normal. And results of ablation? Uh, 
Results of ablation with follow-up of four to five years are excellent, but not excellent enough where we take away the defibrillator. So the defibrillator is the insurance policy, but hopefully it's not going to fire. Yes. So I don't know if we'll have time to talk about RV dysplasia today, but we've still got the two other entities, or basically one other entity, isn't it? PVCs causing palpitations with or without left ventricular dysfunction. I think it's important to mention for the audience that PVC-induced LV dysfunction is well described, and, and what, it, what it is is a modest reduction in ejection fraction and a modest increase in volumes. I, I, my own impression is that PVC-induced, quote, cardiomyopathy does not result in frank heart failure, that it's LV dysfunction, uh, yes. but not, not, not frank CHF, which is very different in the case of AFib or tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy. I think in its purest form with structurally normal hearts, uh, I would agree 100%. But where it gets a little difficult is when they have significant ventricular dysfunction. Yes. And it's hard to know is there another reason for the ventricular dysfunction in addition to the PVCs. And sometimes the only way to know is to try to get the PVCs to go away. Sam, I saw a patient a week ago who was referred for a VT ablation, who in the end we felt did not need a VT ablation, complaining of fatigue and some palpitations and symptoms with about 8,000 PVCs per 24 hours. My impression is that this becomes, this entity uh, really is 30,000 PVCs and up. And even then it's not always easy to be sure that the symptoms are due to the PVCs. Studies that we have so far clearly show that it's the number of PVCs that's paramount. So less than 20,000, it's very rare that it's going to be significant ventricular dysfunction. However, there are some exceptions. For example, in some patients, it appears that certain morphologies of PVCs uh, produce more dyssynchrony. Than, oh, so than a left bundle branch block morphology. Left bundle morphology, very wide QRS, where we okay. may have to think, even if it's between, say, ten to thirty percent, uh, ten to thirty thousand PVCs per day. And uh, particularly if they have underlying LV dysfunction. Yes. So, um, before we get to ablation, what is the uh, evalu? What is the evaluation in in such a patient with or without LV dysfunction? So in patients with outflow tract, VT, or frequent PVCs, some uh, imaging to exclude right ventricular dysplasia or sarcoidosis, I think, is uh, necessary. MRI, CT, any? MRI or CT, if very frequent PVCs each day, CT is probably more reliable because of issues with gating. Uh, but otherwise, MRI is better at picking up uh, both of these findings. And then the 12-lead halter is, yes. is key, isn't it? Yes. To show that you're basically dealing with a dominant morphology. Yes. And as a rule of thumb, if there is more than one morphology and both are uh, seem to arise on the free wall of the RVOT, the suspicion of dysplasia goes up. Whereas if they appear to arise more on the septum and there are multiple morphologies, the suspicion for sarcoidosis goes uh, goes up. So, but if you see three or four morphologies, but in 95% of the PVCs are of one morphology, it would still be worth an attempt at ablation. Yes. 
before I ask you about the results of ablation, um, I just want to bring up one one other quote diagnostic tool, and that is that uh, I've often given patients just a trial of amiodarone for two to three months on the assumption that amiodarone will get rid of the PVCs, and then we'll see if their symptoms get better or whether their LV function gets better. And that that's a sort of stress test, if you want to call it that. And uh, if, if it does, then that, that all the more reason to ablate them. This is an excellent approach and usually clarifies the situation clearly. Are the PVCs responsible for symptoms? Does the ventricular function improve? The only downsides are there's a small patient population who won't tolerate the amiodarone. And some of the idiosyncratic uh, reactions that we see with amiodarone that are not dose or duration dependent would still be concerns. Yeah, liver toxicity, the occasional patient with QT prolongation, mm-hmm. sinus node dysfunction. Yes. Um, but uh, what about a trial of flecainide, or would you go straight to amiodarone? Flecainide can be used as a trial in patients who are having the syndrome of symptoms and PVCs. But with ventricular dysfunction, it's a little bit harder to use just because of the potential risk that we could slow conduction further and induce a monomorphic VT. So the answer is whatever drug we give, monitoring conditions and be careful. Um, What about stress testing routinely in any patient, any of these patients? Yes, uh, I would say it's mandatory in any patient who has exercise-related symptoms. No, I... In this the, is a group without exercise-related symptoms. They're coming with 20,000, 30,000 PVCs. If they don't, in my own practice, I go with a 24-hour holter with them active on that day. And if there's no suspicion of worse uh, PVCs with when they're active compared to at night, then I don't routinely do a stress test. Sam, the results of ablation? So I quote patients, uh, our practice, which is about a 50 to 75% success, But I should qualify that by saying the main reason for failure is non-inducibility of the arrhythmia. When the arrhythmia is actually sane on the day of ablation and we can map, it's upwards of 90% that we can be successful. In other words, you're all dressed up to go and the PVCs go away. Yes. Is that not called Murphy's Law? Mother Nature (laughs) never will treat you well. Yes. Uh, A lot depends on the patient's uh, willingness to go through the procedure without sedation. Uh, most adult patients without significant underlying anxiety, our first attempt itself we do without sedation. So as to increase the likelihood mm-hmm. of the PVCs will be there. Mm-hmm. And obviously the 12-lead, a, a previous 12-lead halter may help in that it you can pace map even if you can't actually see PVCs and directly map, but you mm-hmm. still have you still have that to fall back on. Yes, pace mapping where we just pace from an area of the heart and compare it with PVCs can be used, somewhat controversial in the field of interventional electrophysiology. Personal viewpoint is it's probably not reliable enough that we like to see as much PVCs as so possible. Take home message, if, we cannot, if the PVCs are present and inducible, uh, 95, 90 to 95% success rate, biggest major cause for lack of success is non-inducibility, yes. which we will refer to as Murphy's Law. Yes. Thank you very much, Sam. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. 
Visit theheart.org to find out more.